I've been in this business since 2008 and the talk of interest rates going up has happened every year. Most people's thoughts were, yeah, they might go up, but they're going to go up by like 200 basis points, maybe 300 basis points. There was a lot of exuberance. Underwriting got a little sloppy. There are some investors in the real estate space facing rough waters in light of rising interest rates and inflation. We've heard many describe the current environment as a time for operators to shine and to see who's been swimming naked. To explain the missteps investors made and the consequences of those mistakes, we brought on industry veteran Todd Dexheimer to shine a light on the red flags investors missed and what it means for the industry at large. I've been in the business for, uh, what's it, 15 years. Um, started doing multifamily, started doing, sorry, single family, uh, fix and flips, uh, buying duplexes, buying single families for rentals. Um, so did that whole game for quite some time. Um, you know, flipped well over a hundred properties and had a rental portfolio of about a hundred one to four family rentals and then transitioned into multifamily um, and, and commercial. And so now our portfolio uh, consists of about uh, 3000 multifamily units, um, another 450 assisted living units, um, have some retail, have some industrial, uh, but the bread and butter um, and, and just still the, the niche and what we focus on is, is multifamily. So I just want to get into the meat of the conversation today, which is sort of comparing where the market was in, in, in general, not just multifamily, but where that was in 2021 and 2022 compared to today. And I have this um, statistic from Moody's Analytics. It estimated that $235 billion in multifamily loans held by banks will come due in 2023 and 2024. So to start off the conversation, what are you seeing in the multifamily environment right now? And what challenges are owners and operators facing? That's a big question uh, and a big answer too, right? There's there's a lot to unpack in that. But I think the, uh, we'll, we'll start with kind of what you just mentioned with uh, the loan maturities. There's two. There's a couple of things that people have to remember: is, is you're li- looking at the statistics and seeing these articles out there. First of all, understand that they are written to grab your attention, and they are true, potentially, likely, but it does not clearly define if there's a problem at hand because just because there's what did you say? Two hundred thirty-five billion. Billion, yeah. Just because that's coming due doesn't mean that that's an anomaly, right? It doesn't mean that those are at risk. So, it's like the co. I, I take it the COVID statistics were my favorite. You know, <clears throat> you'd see this headline: thirty percent of tenants haven't paid rent so far this month. Mm-hmm. And I'm going, well, yeah, because that article came out on the fifth of the month, and. The article, the, that research, the data was from the third of the month. And so pre-COVID, that would have been 29.85% haven't paid rent. And now it's 30%. Like there's no statistical change. So I'm not saying that's the case here, but for any data point, do some background checking and make sure you're understanding what that actually means. So mm-hmm. Now to fast forward to your point there, there's a lot of loan maturities coming due where that plays the biggest amount of risk. Okay. Cause we want to talk about what, what the risk is of that, where this plays the biggest amount of risk is on loans or, or properties where the DSCR is 
not substantially over 100 and 125. So, so right. So we have, we're able to pay our debt service really easily. And if we're at 125, 130, maybe even 135 or 140 for our debt service coverage ratio and our loan becomes due, that might be challenging or if we're under that, of course, that might be challenging for us because interest rate just went from maybe three and a half percent to now we're going to be at five and a half percent. So now all of a sudden your DSCR goes from 125 down to 110. And that's a problem for the banks because they can't approve you for that. So what has to happen is then you need to come in with extra money to get your loan amount to be lower. So your payments lower. So you hit your debt service coverage ratio. So that's the big kind of ugly thing, uh, a creature in the room is how many people are going to have debt service coverage ratios that are below that 125 once the new interest rate comes and need to come with more capital, but just don't have the capital come up with. That's to me the biggest risk right now. I do think it's actually a fairly small percentage, but even that small percentage can make a fairly big impact on the market. So definitely something to be watching. I think your biggest risk are people that purchased, you know, a, a floating rate bridge loan, um, even a Fannie, uh, Freddie type loan, agency debt loan, CMBS, but maybe it was only uh, fixed for five years and they have to write it now. And, and all of a sudden we're going to get new interest rate and you bought it at the height of the market or close to it. You know, you, I, I, we're looking at a deal um, mm-hmm. that the guy, the, the, the it's actually a pretty, pretty uh, well-known person. Um, he purchased this property for 23 million in 2018, uh, sorry, 2019, 2019. And you'd think, well, four years ago, you know, values have risen. Well, we're, they want to get out and they're, they want to sell it for 24 and a half million, essentially break even for them. Well, we're underwriting and we're saying, well, we have to buy it for like 19 for this deal to work for us. So I don't know what's going to happen there if he's going to, they're going to be able to sell it for the 24. But if they don't, you know, I, my guess is they're in a position where they bought it for a big price and they don't have equity and they are coming due with their loan soon and they're going, crap, what do we do? Let's get up. Let's get out of this deal. So there, there's going to be that. that. That definitely is going to be around. You're, you're so right. I'm, a lot of times I know these stats and facts only provide a really small uh, per portion of the picture. It's not necessarily the full picture. And so if you see any chance, I know I have, I'm going to throw out a lot of facts and stats at you. So if you see any opportunity to fact check me or um, kind of like point out a gap in that, I absolutely more than encourage you to do that. I think it's well, important well, to get that holistic perspective. Yeah. And I think again, to, to go back to what I just said, every stat that you're going to throw out, there's a story behind it. Mm-hmm. So I think the most important part is to understand the context of that stat and the story behind it. Not that the stat is wrong, Mm -hmm. but maybe what the stat is, what the person that's putting the stat out, not you necessarily, but the the Moody's article or whatever, they are trying to gain people to look at it and to click it and to go, Hey, you know, look at this. Like, Oh my gosh, the world is going to erode and we're all crumbling and everybody's, uh, you know, so they want you to grab that 
headline and think something's wrong. Um, but if you don't know what it means, well, then figure it out. Exactly. And so I, I want to back it up a little bit to 2021 and 2022. In those years, investors purchased, and this is another stat, uh, $299.2 billion worth of apartments, which was unprecedented. Uh, investors Wait, were seeing. That? Sorry, what year was uh, that? It was in 2000, uh, 2021, between 2021 and 2022. And um, investors were seeing lots of opportunity in that time, obviously, and um, success in the booming market. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering, I'm sure, I, I believe you were active in that time as well. Can you yeah. kind of provide some context or uh, what your experience was like in that environment? What was that like? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of deals getting done during that time, and there was a lot of, uh, I would say, um, positive feelings about the market and where it was heading. Interest rates uh, were super low, and you know, yeah, there's there was definitely whispers of interest rates going up, but you know, the that had interest. I've been in this business since 2008, and the talk of interest rates going up has happened every year at almost all times since 2008. So to believe that they were going up, I think most people said, well, yeah, maybe, but also to believe that they were going to go up faster than they've ever gone up in history. At a, I mean, just think of where they, they were at essentially the fed fund rate was basically zero. And, and now we're looking, you know, five. So it's, it's a big change. Right. So I think most people's thoughts were, yeah, they might go up, but they're going to go up by like, you know, 200 basis points, maybe 300 basis points. So, you know, that time it was definitely, there was a lot of exuberance. I would say um, it was challenging to buy properties, although it's always challenging to buy properties if you're trying to be smart about how you're buying. Um, but I think there was a lot of deals done during that time where underwriting got a little sloppy. And by that, I mean, you're saying, hey, expenses are going to go up by 2% or maybe 3%, but our income is going to go up by 5% or 6%. And here's our pro forma rent. We're going to do this value add. We're going to spend you know, 7000 a unit to renovate it, and we're going to get an average of 1500 bucks a month when the market really should you know, you're probably going to spend eight or nine grand a unit and you're only going to get, you know, 1350 a month. But people are pushing the envelope going, yeah, but I've been wrong and look at how fast it's increasing. And by the time I get to these renovated units, it's going to be 1500. So that's what we're going to put in our number. And we got to show <laughs> our investors good returns. And so I think a lot of that stuff happened. And then the other thing is debt was so freaking cheap and so you're getting this bridge loan, 80% LTV. By the way, the more you leverage, the higher you your IRR is, as long as everything goes really well, right? So there's more risk, but your IRR looks really good. So if I'm going to show investors really good returns, I'm going to max my leverage out, right? And then my interest rates are at, you know, Sofer plus whatever we could get. And so Sofer was basically zero. And so, you know, our interest rates are maybe at three, four percent. It's like, geez, this deal works all day long. Well, what happens when interest rates go up by 500 basis points? Now the deal doesn't work so well. So that that was 2021 in a nutshell, just a, a lot of exuberance, but a lot of great opportunity if everything stayed the same. 
Yeah. And that's a great point because like you were saying, it was a great time. I know a lot of, like you said, a lot of transactions were happening during that time, but I imagine it was also very competitive to win deals. And as a result of that, you touched on it. A lot of investors were making some aggressive assumptions in their underwriting. Um, and I, I wanted to have you kind of expand on that. Was there anything else it took to win a deal? I know you could still stick to your underwriting, stick yeah. to your investment criteria, but where did they maybe go off the rails, so to speak, and um, really like go outside of the boxes they otherwise would have in order to win deals? Yeah. So, I, you know, that was a time of a high amount of earnest money. So people were putting big, big checks down. I mean, we, we had some deals that we lost out on where... You know, we're sitting here looking at putting a three, four hundred thousand dollar earnest money check in. There's other money sitting there putting a three million dollar earnest money check down. Um, short due diligence time frames, um, you know, short closing time frames, all that kind of stuff. Those are the probably the biggest things that that would win deals. Um, uh, you know, I, I think, um, and then, and now again, back to the, just the sloppy underwriting. I mean, I, I don't know how many deals we underwrote in 2020 and 2021, but the vast majority of them in 2022, um, the vast majority we, we didn't buy. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so, I, I, you know, 2022, I think was our, was the year we bought most of them, but, or, or I shouldn't say most of them, we, we bought a good amount of properties, but there, there was way more properties that we underwrote that we didn't buy and that we were so far off on. It was sometimes unreal that at the same time, there was more deals being brought to market because I think sellers saw the prices and they let's cash in. Right. Which are, they were smart in hindsight. They were really smart. And in hindsight, I think there's going to be a lot of people that are like, crap, we got stuck with these properties that we shouldn't have bought during that time. It's real hindsight is super super easy right it's it's we're all geniuses when we can look back mm -hmm. but it's not that here you you hear people talking about what's oh, the inexperienced people that are going to get caught in it that's not the case necessarily there's inexperienced people that caught, caught it there's people with experience you know semi amount of experience and there's people with a ton of experience I mean, we were competing against people that had 10,000 plus units that have been in the business for 30 plus years, and they were outbidding us on projects by 15, 20, 25%. And you go, well, well they're, they're smarter than everybody else. Are you sure they are? Because they were buying those properties for way more than what we were willing to pay for them. So, you know, I think, I think it'll be interesting how it plays out, but mm -hmm. I don't think any one kind of group is going to be immune from from the pain that could happen. Again, it's this is all hypothetical. You know, hindsight again is going to is going to be you know a great storyteller. Um, we might come out of this mostly unscathed, but we also might come out of this with a lot of pain. So mm -hmm. um, we we feel fairly confident in our deals. Everyone's different. Uh, but we still feel fairly confident in our deals. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say all of our deals are going to hit our return metrics and exceed them. There might be deals that we don't hit our return metrics, that we don't come close to our return metrics. But we do feel like every one of our deals right now um, has a very high degree of you know, being able to make it through this and be profitable in the end. I had uh, Brian Burke on the podcast a few days ago, and he said, 
right now surviving is just not losing any of your properties and that's a win. So I, I imagine yeah. Yeah, that's a win. So I was talking with a broker um, that was invested in, I think he said 12 deals back in, you know, 2000, the, the run up to the great recession, right? So, so 2004, 2005, 2006, you know, he, so he invested in all these opportunities and every single one of them did a capital call. Every single one of them did a capital call when the Great Recession happened through that period of time. And they all ended up being profitable in the end. So they all made it through that. They all survived and they all made money in the end and they got nice returns in the end. It wasn't wow. that they just made money. They got very nice returns. So Brian's right. Right now, a win is getting through this, surviving and coming out the other end mm -hmm. on top. And I know, so I love how you're able to provide that optimistic perspective on it. And I, I think like you're right, a lot of the news headlines and statistics out there are going to frame a certain narrative. And a lot of my questions might even come from that angle, but I'm, I would ask you to really lean into like, if there is more a positive upside to a lot of these points, it would not only help the audience, but also myself and other investors out there who are just kind of like not really sure what's going on. This is maybe their first time going through something like this. And I know, like yeah. you said, you've been in it since 2008. So with that yeah. being said, the, a big reason why interest rates have shot up and that's a major pain, a source of pain for a lot of these yeah. operators is the Fed. They were combating inflation or at least attempting to. There's this wide held uh, uh, belief that as inflation increases, the value of multifamily properties also increases, mm. which is a plus. And there is a conflicting statistic that I found that said CI estimated in February 2023 that apartment building prices had fallen an average of 8.7% year over year. Another statistic said that uh, they estimated that they'd declined by 21% from a year ago. Um, yep. I just wanted to know because I'm a big believer in talking to people who are actually on the ground, actually own assets. Have you seen any decline in property values? And what do you think is causing these, if so? Yeah, so we're in the, I'm in the Midwest markets. Okay. Um, so I'm in Ohio, Minnesota, Kentucky, Tennessee. And so we don't see at nearly the big fluctuations that some of the coastal markets see, that the Sun Belt markets see, the Dallas, the Phoenix, you know, that those, those markets. Um, we have seen price declines, but not, not nearly that 21%. I know for a fact, and I talk to people in these markets that markets like Phoenix and, and again, it's still like, I can say a market like Phoenix, but Phoenix is a big market, right? There's a class properties, B class, C class, there's certain neighborhoods. There's, there's mm -hmm. so many things that change the statistic depending on what block you're on, but properties in Phoenix, for instance, I've heard anywhere between 20 to 40% price drops. Um, you know, prices in Austin, Texas, same type of thing. But prices in the Midwest, you know, might be down by 5 to 10%. So it's going to be based on your local market and understand that. But yeah, prices are down. And so it definitely counteracts this inflationary thing that mm. the, I think overall, though, what inflation does to hard assets is raise their value. It might not be real time. It might not be today, but I think overall in the end that inflation will raise real property values by a, a, a nice margin. So mm -hmm. I think, and by the way, a lot of what multifamily got, we had, we had an asset 
bubble, almost probably every asset, right? We had this asset bubble and this was caused by low interest rates, very low interest rates. And it just caused people to come into assets, multifamily being one of them. And so we had this big run up in rent prices, this big run up in valuations prior to what we felt like was consumer inflation. Well, we had our commercial real estate inflation and then the consumer inflation started and now we're seeing it go down, but we're still at a higher point than we were just a few years ago. So even when you're talking some of these big drops in a Phoenix, Arizona, Austin, Texas, and you name it, like prices are still up from just a few years ago. You know, rent, rents are declining in those markets. Well, they were increasing by 30%. They're still up overall. So yeah, that's a great point. I know Jason Hartman is a big fan of saying compared to what? And he talks about that in the context of like uh, one investment's performance to, uh, compared to another asset class. But that also applies to this conversation here where, yeah, it might be falling, but compared to what year? You know, because I guess like you're saying in, in, the, in the grand scheme of things, they're still relatively high. Yeah. And you don't care if you're a smart investor. You don't care when building values go down. You care when your NOI goes down, your net operating income goes down. That's what you care about. So that's what you need to be protecting. Don't care about protecting your, your property value. That you really have no control. You have control or at least some control over the net operating income. So that's what you should be focusing on. And you drive that up as high as you can. And then when it's time to sell, when you want to sell, when the market is primed for you to sell, you're fine right? Mm -hmm. It's where you have to sell or you're panic selling because the market goes down that that's when you get yourself into trouble. And earlier you touched on rental rates as well as a major pain source of pain for a lot of operators. How have rental rates changed? I think there's some debate as to how yeah. rental rates will be impacted by an economic downturn or just the kind of economic turbulence we're seeing right now. So how have you actually seen that play out? Yeah, it's funny because you heard it so often during the, the last, you know, probably decade that, oh, rents never go down. They never go down. Yeah. Okay, great. We live in la-la land here because rents go down. They've gone down before. And by the way, when people put these statistics out that say rents don't go down, they're not including concessions. And I just was on a LinkedIn post uh, the other uh, today. Actually, you got, a guy was asking about these massive concessions and, you know, all of a sudden they're losing a lot of occupancy. And it's, what are you guys doing to, um, you know, to, to incentivize tenants to come in? Well, we're not, we're not seeing that in the Midwest. Um, we're still seeing rents increase. We're still seeing good occupancy. We're not having to give huge concessions, but you're seeing that in some markets. And not, I'm not saying the Midwest won't be immune to it. We just haven't seen it yet. Um, but rents can go down and they will go down and they are going down right now in many markets. And I do firmly believe that even if your market hasn't seen that yet, that it's likely to see a minimum of a slowdown in the rent increase that you're seeing. But it, very likely by this fall, you're going to see the vast majority of our country having declining rents. I really firmly believe that. Um, and, and it's just how it is. And there's several factors that play into it. And if we have a recession, 
that will only become a bigger amount, right? That, that just how it is. So, and the other thing that happens, so there's, there's what happens when a recession happens is, you know, you've got your own place, but you lose your job or you're just feeling tight, right? And I do the same thing. I'm feeling tight or maybe I lose my job and you and I are friends and we live, you know, a few blocks from each other or a couple miles from each other. But hey, we're like, look, man, my, my lease is up in, in a month. How about I just room with you? Do you want to become roommates for a while? Yeah, let's do it. You know, so now all of a sudden people start shacking up with each other and now you got roommates. And I think COVID drove that actually the opposite way. And a recession will bring it back and it will actually really change it quickly, uh, causing a lot of kind of short-term pain in the in the multifamily industry, which then landlords have to get creative. And they want to drive occupancy and they want to keep their rents as high as they can. So they start offering big concessions and and doing things like that. So uh, I see it happening. I, I think it's going to continue to happen, and especially in markets that are having a lot of construction. Um, you know, there's a lot of units being built. And uh, especially in some of these high growth markets, there's a lot of units being built and a lot more than are what are needed. In Minneapolis, for instance, we're not a high growth market. We're a very low growth market. We've got 11,000 new units coming on market. We only need like 4,000. That's going to be a big challenge for our yeah. market, especially if you couple that with a potential of a recession. That's going to be a really big challenge. You're touching on a really almost, for lack of a better phrase, like a contrarian perspective because, you know, of course, inflation, high interest rates, and even uh, property values, that's something that we see a lot in the news. But and we also see the affordable housing crisis, how the U.S. is becoming a renter's nation things like that that suggest that demand for these multifamily units will remain high. But you're touching on the, the influx of new build construction multifamily units. And also, there's this trend that I've been seeing a lot of, uh, not necessarily in the news, but I, I've heard that vacancy rates are also increasing across the board. And that was yeah. perfect uh, leeway into my next question regarding your own portfolio and maybe the in your own investor network. Have that is Has that been a, a widespread phenomenon about higher vacancy rates at these multifamily properties? And if so, what do you think is causing it? Are you, what's your perspective on that affordable housing crisis? Are you saying that it's not as bad as people make it out to be? Boy, um, so, uh, all right, I'll go over your first part of the question. Um, our portfolio, we actually saw a decent amount of increase of vacancy happening um, last year, end of last year, through probably April um, of 2023. We we saw some pressure there and it it's not like our vacancy spiked. It didn't shoot way up, but we had some, definitely some higher vacancy that we'd like to see. And we had some properties where we started doing concessions to get us back to where we wanted to be at. And now the opposite has been happening. We've gotten our occupancy at or better. I mean, we've got a couple of properties that are at a hundred percent, no concessions, raising rents. You know, again, this is Midwest different than other markets. Mm -hmm. But uh, I do know other people that are in, I know, I, I mean, I, I talked to a lot of people that are, are across the country. And so you got various markets doing various different things. It's very, very different, um, that, especially than it has been over the, over the last like 10 years, every market was doing the same, just different statistics. Every market was, you know, occupancy was great. 
Um, some were some better than others, but occupancy was great. Rents were going up. Uh, concessions were almost non-existent. Like every pretty, pretty much every market was that. Now it varies so much depending on exact market and even location within that market. Um, rent affordability. Look, I, I yeah, there's still a big problem in the, in the country of, for rent affordability. I don't know how you solve that problem mm-hmm. um, without having a massive uh, recession in housing, right? Uh, that's the only way you solve it is if all of a sudden rents go down by 20, 30%. And it could, could that happen? Maybe, but um, I think that's going to be challenging. Wouldn't you say that the that massive gap between what people can afford and where rents are is a result of the lack of housing? And you were saying some of the markets. Mm, I think that's market. one ingredient. Okay. Um, but I also think another ingredient is expenses. Incomes have gone up less than expenses over the past, you know, decade plus. And as a landlord, I've got to, I, I have to make money or at least break even. I got to, I got to be able to cover my debt service. So, and debt service has gone up um, because prices have gone up. And so there's just this kind of building onto it. And by the way, if I'm going to build something new, I can't go build a C-class building. So even though there's maybe more properties available, the type of product available isn't serving that lower end of the market that we're really talking about right now. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the, so there's, there's many things that play into it, but you know, look, when my property tax bills are going up by 20%, my insurance costs are going up by 15 to 30%. Uh, you know, I, I know somebody that in Florida, their insurance went from $470 a month up to like 2,500 bucks a month. You know, in Texas, uh, my, my friends were paying 250 bucks, sorry, not a month, uh, a unit, 250 bucks a unit. Now they're paying like 1800 a unit for insurance. You know, so those are real costs and those get passed down to the resident. And so that just makes it less affordable. And a lot of these cities on the property tax side, just, they don't understand it. They, they're, they're, they're not charging the tenant. Well, yes, they are. You are charging the tenant. Um, but they don't understand that and, and it's okay, but it just causes a problem across the board. So there's, there's a lot that plays into the, the yeah. lack of affordability. And I think the lack of inventory is just one small part of that. Um, Inventory is interesting and it can change really, really quickly in it and it can get exasperated quickly by a recession or by, you know, great times. Um, COVID, I think, did again, it made it so where people wanted their own place um, and a recession is going to do the opposite really quickly. So we might have an, an inventory problem the opposite way. No, I appreciate you sharing that because it is a complex issue and I guess there isn't just one factor that contributes to this, to what's going on. And one of the problems too, and I think this makes it the hardest, the reason it's so hard to solve is because we oftentimes try to assume one Mm -hmm. solution or one, one thing is a part of it is going to be the solution. And that's not usually how it is. It's a complex hodgepodge of many multiple things that 
is going to help us in the situation. And some of it we can control and others we just might not even be able to control. So some, sometimes it's just that snowball effect that continues and it's really challenging to stop. This is sort of a, a pivot on topic, but there's something that you've mentioned in the past in a, in a previous interview. Uh, it was regarding some other mistakes or uh, I guess assumptions that investors can make. And specifically regarding banks, as we can, as we've seen in the news and in recent months, bank failures have been more prevalent than maybe they mm-hmm. have in previous years. Uh, for example, mm-hmm. the Silicon Valley Bank. Um, and so, I would say that maybe it's, it's a naive assumption at this point to assume that every bank is secure and, and a safe uh, place to put your money. Uh, what has have you experienced regarding this, and how should investors maybe be vetting the banks that they're working with? Um, yeah. So we so there's um, there's there's a, a web page you can go to that you can actually look at the strength of the bank. Now you are counting on a third party to that, that mm-hmm. they did their due diligence, but there's they, they give these banks a score and, and you're looking to make sure that they're you know just just a really viable bank. You also want to look at their deposits, you know, or hopefully their deposits are going up and not down. Um I think what you can do beyond just looking at the bank. So so looking at the bank first definitely that's that's nice. Secondly is you want to make sure that you're not putting all your money into that one bank and you're not going over that $250,000. Now, you're running a big property, you've got a lot of income and expenses and you need a big bank account, right? We've got several properties where we need a bank account that's seven figures or close to it. So what do you do? You well, you can spread out your risk between multiple accounts, between multiple banks. Um, you don't have to put all your eggs in just that one basket. So it can become a little bit more challenging, a little bit more work, but you're protecting um, your money. If, if you have investors, your investors' money by spreading that risk out a little bit. You might've had like an experience where you it was almost a aha moment for you. <laughs> can you maybe dive into that a little bit in terms of at what point you realized that maybe you should spread your risk among banks? I think, you know, obviously you're sitting here looking at these these yeah. banks and you're going, we don't have access to this capital. I remember talking to a couple of people that didn't get their paychecks when SVB closed wow. down and it and they didn't even have, you know, the, the employer was actually through Wells Fargo, but the Wells Fargo, it was some, some anyway, there was a tie together where because SVB, Wells Fargo couldn't, do their thing. And then people weren't getting paid. And I, th- I think, um, you know, we also had an account with, um, it was a signature bank, um, okay. who had some trouble too. Um, luckily it wasn't a, it was a, more of a sweep account, so it wasn't a big account. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, you, you gotta, one thing I learned during the great recession is you can't just hitch your self to one bank um because one bank can can turn and change really quickly mm-hmm. so we have relationships with many different banks you know there's a there's a bank that lends a lot of money to commercial real estate up until just recently and now they don't really, really lend any money to commercial real estate if that's your only relationship you're dead in the water you got to go build new relationships that takes a little while um you know, so, so it's just like anything, you know, you gotta have 
relationships with multiple businesses, with multiple banks, um, multiple different lenders out there to try to continue doing business. Um, I'll, you know, uh, I, I think, uh, the, the whole banking, I don't, I don't think we're out of it by the way, either. Like, I think there's going to be more issues happening, uh, over the next year that we're not out of the woods with the banks. Yeah, I know that. I think a key lesson from our conversation today has been spreading your risk and that applies to, like you say, you know, like you're saying, having your relationships with your banks. But I think it also applies to asset classes and where you're investing. Um, I know you mentioned at the beginning that you are involved in some industrial investments and uh, retail. One, has your confidence in multifamily changed at all? And is now a good time or a bad time for someone who's maybe looking to get into real estate uh, to, to, to make that jump? My short-term confidence in multifamily is definitely not as strong as it was uh, previously, but my long-term confidence in multifamily is still very strong. So I still like multifamily long-term. Short-term, I feel like there's a good possibility we're going to see some pain. Would I still buy today? Absolutely. In fact, I just purchased a property just a month ago, right? And so I would still purchase as long as I've got the right things. And so what are the right things? You're looking for location, all right? You want something that has an excellent location. By the way, I this is my firm belief, and this is my belief because I feel like history has proven to us, but C-class properties are the first to go down. They go down the farthest as far as a percentage, and they're the last to go up. And, and so I would much prefer to buy a B-class or A-class neighborhood, actually A-class if I can, in a B or A uh, property. And so that would be my preference to buy very well-located properties. I just, you just can go think back to the great recession and look at the property values and think about the neighborhoods that are really nice neighborhoods. Don't, don't look at the percent, sorry, don't look at the dollar amount that those houses lost value. Look at the percentage. And I almost can guarantee you across the country, the rough neighborhoods, as far as a percentage lost way more value than the nice neighborhoods. I, I know it's a fact in my cities that, that I invest in, and I think most cities across the country is the same. So location, right? Financing, make sure you've got good financing today. Uh, you know, I, I would tend to go a little bit lower leverage, even though it maybe doesn't give you quite as high of an IRR. And I really like fixed rate debt. I think I've always liked fixed rate debt, and I think it's a great option. It's not going to quite give you as much potential return on investment, but it also mitigates your risk. So if you're looking for risk mitigation, uh, location and financing are huge. Um, you know, the last thing I think you need some sort of value to be able to add, and it doesn't need to be a big renovation story, but some sort of value to be able to add. Uh, and I think you're fine. So I, I should you buy today? Absolutely. Still, still buy long-term fundamentals are really still really good. I still love multifamily. I do love other asset classes, but I think multifamily is a, is a great place to be. That reminds me of something that I saw at a conference last month. It was in Atlanta and there was a panel discussing like the future of the of multifamilies especially within the next few months and there was this disagreement over whether or not this there's a lot of people saying oh there's going to be a massive wave of opportunity. People will their, their loans are going to come due and they're going to have to suffer a loss which will be you know, of course, like you'll be buying, stealing properties, essentially. And one of the panelists said that they're aware that there's a lot of capital on the sidelines right now. And they're 
opinion was that this was going to keep prices high because there was going to be so much competition since a lot of people are sitting on the sidelines. So I would love to know, I mean, what is your perspective on that? Do you think that there's a lot of opportunity coming for that capital that's quote unquote dry powder, uh, dry, dry gunpowder at the moment? Okay. So let's just assume that there's going to be opportunity that people are going to get foreclosed on or get into trouble and have to get rid of properties. Okay. <clears throat> there's two things we can say. One is, yeah, there's going to be a ton of opportunity out there and, and, and that certainly could be the case, but here's the reason. So here's the reason why that could be the case. So ton of opportunity out there. We say sidelines, capitals on the sidelines waiting to buy. But here's one thing I learned from the great recession. Capital gets scared. There was a lot of capital on the sidelines in 2006, 7, 8, 9, 10. But guess what? They stayed on the sidelines because they were scared and they didn't want to jump in too early. And so they waited and they waited and they didn't start getting in until 2000, late 2012 into 2013. If you look at the capital that came into the market, that's when it started coming in. Everybody else was scared to get in too early. They wanted to wait till the bottom. So people are scared. So what could happen is if we have opportunity, this money on the sidelines stays on the sidelines and that provides an expanded time period of opportunity. Call it two, three years of opportunity to where you can get in. Now, by the way, this is the scariest time because that property you're bought, you, you could have bought for, let's call it 150 a door in 2022. Now you're buying for 110 a door in 2024, let's call it. But in 2025, that property is going to worth, be worth 90 a door, right? And in 2026, maybe it's even worth 80 a door. So you're like, ooh, do I really want to buy this? If, if, if you only have your crystal ball goes from today through 2025, you're like, crap, I can't buy that property. I'm going to wait till 2025 because it's going to go from 110 down to 80, right? So I, I got to wait till then. Mm -hmm. But what you don't realize is that even though you bought it for 110 a door or 120 or whatever you bought it for, you still got a great value because the price will go back up. And that's what I was doing in 2008 and 2009 and 2010. My property values were decreasing in value every single year, but it didn't matter to me because I was cash flowing really, really well. So don't wait on the sidelines, I guess is the, the moral of the story, but I think a lot of capital could wait on the sidelines. Now, I understand that capital on the sidelines point, and it's a valid point. And one thing that could stop us from seeing much opportunity, I think, is that there is this capital that's waiting for, um, waiting to take advantage of distressed loans. And so if they actually step in and don't stay on the sidelines, you're not even going to know those deals existed. You won't even know. Uh, so yeah. Let's say I'm distressed. Okay. I got a property. I'm distressed. I'm, I don't know what to do. I'm going to call up my mortgage broker, find out what's going on. My mortgage broker has 20 connections of, of people that have raised money to be rescue capital. Okay. So I'm going to call up one of these rescue capital. My broker is, we're going to work out this deal. They're going to rescue me from going into foreclosure. 
they're going to basically take out all my equity. They're going to probably take out some of my investors' equity. You know, we're not going to make any money, but that's okay. We didn't get foreclosed on. But nobody's going to know about that deal, by the way. It's not going to make it in the news. It's nobody's going to hear about it because this rescue capital came in and they saved us from embarrassment. And that's it. Mm -hmm. But they are the ones that got the sweet deal, right? They got this big equity play and uh, they got in for you know, whatever they, they end up charging. A, a lot of times it's a big, heavy pref or something like that. They're the only ones that are making money. I didn't make money, but I also didn't get foreclosed on. So the, so the news doesn't find out. Nobody knows. So I can see that happening as well. One thing I want to say is I feel like I've been very negative today. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't have a super negative outlook. I do. I do have some, definitely some negativity, you know, happening here, but I think more than negativity is that I'm trying I try to look at things eyes wide open and understand there's a lot of scenarios that could still play out here that are unpredictable. But the optimism is, in my opinion, that we are still living in a time where purchasing commercial assets with the right fundamentals is going to be a very profitable game in the end and, and should be something that everybody puts, you know, onto their on their, uh, you know, food menu. So mm -hmm. I, I still think it's a great time to buy. Just keep your eyes wide open and understand the risks. I've got a podcast as well, Pillars of Wealth Creation. Uh, check it out wherever you're, you're, you're listening to this, Pillars of Wealth Creation. And then my uh, website is endurusscapital.com, E-N-D-U-R-U-S-Capital.com. Feel free to reach out to me, Todd at endurusscapital.com as well.